Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Esther. The book of Esther, we finished last week our study through the book of Ruth. And there are certainly, there's a lot of differences between the book of Ruth and the book of Esther, but there are uh, some similarities as it relates to, and I've said this as uh, when we were going through the book of Ruth, there are some similarities as it relates to our experience, our daily walking with the Lord that uh, both of these books, or neither of these books, have God audibly speaking to an individual. There's no parting of the Red Sea. There aren't um, what we would call these miracles um, in in the traditional sense of that word. But what we do see is a tracing, especially in the shadows of life, of, of God's providential hand guiding and rescuing and redeeming his people, which is what God does. And so my prayer uh, as we work through the book of Esther is the same as working through the book of Ruth, that we will uh, see the redemptive narrative, uh, and, and because that, that is the connective tissue that holds together uh, all, the, all 66 books of the Bible. They're all pointing us toward uh, a loving God who sought us and saved us in Jesus and by his uh, spirit applied the works of Christ to our lives, applying our sinful deeds to Christ. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, Second Corinthians 5.21. And so as, as we look at this book, I want us to uh, pay attention uh, to this theme that God is, is, our God is a preserving God. He preserves and saves his people, right? And, and that's kind of the meta-narrative of this book, and we see this happen through Mordecai and through uh, Esther as we'll go along, if you're familiar with this book at all. But um, just a few details about the book. Again, God's name is never mentioned in it, but we see his guiding providential hand all over it. Much like the book of Ruth, we don't know who the human author uh, of Esther was. There are some historians that credit uh, Mordecai writing it sometime later, uh, Mordecai being uh, Esther's cousin, perhaps older cousin, uh, who takes care of her and who watched over her and will be introduced to him in the second chapter of the book. Um, but it's uh, we know that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God and that it was kept uh, preserved, kept it, it, it was it was kept pure by the Holy Spirit of God, so that we could sit here, read it, and trust that to to read the Word of God, to hear the Word of God, is to hear God Himself. And so, again, the the main narrative is God preserving and saving His people. Um, but we're going to see, especially in this chapter this morning, um, that that God has power over kings or God has power over seemingly powerful people. And, and this book of Esther, and, and this chapter in particularly, it reminded me of Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, that I'll read to you before we jump to our text. Chapter 21, verse 1 of Proverbs says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And uh, again, we're going to see that this morning in chapter 1, uh, but we're, we're going to certainly see that over the course of this book. But let's look together. Esther 1, I'm going to read it in its entirety, and then I'm going to pray, and then we will jump in. And so the Holy Spirit of God inspired someone, perhaps Mordecai, 
to write these words. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, right? Think here, think of the Kremlin, okay? If we wanted some sort of visual representation for what this place was. Uh, but in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and his servants, the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. And while, while he showed the riches of his glory in the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days, and when these days were completed... The king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Verse 6. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and couches of gold and silver, which sound really uncomfortable, on a mosaic pavement of uh, porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Verse 7, drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict, quote, there's no compulsion For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Okay, in in verse 8 here, just a a little bit of commentary as we go around. I think what we're seeing here is a little bit of of satire in in this passage. I think there's some mocking going on by whoever wrote this book. I think the author here wants us to see the the silliness, if you will, of, of this king, King Ahasuerus, and how serious too serious. He takes himself and his accomplishments and his possessions, right? Even the freedom there in verse 8, the freedom to drink, even the freedom to drink had to be under his control and eat it past, right? You must drink a lot or you must drink a little or you must drink none at all. It's your choice, but your choice is granted by my law. It's kind of what we See here. And so there's this see how benevolent I am, see how great I am, see how great it is to live in my kingdom. And so we we see here a very insecure king, okay? So let's keep going. Verse 9 Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus, okay? And so we move on now to verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded um, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zether, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. 
Then the king said to the wise men, some satire I think there, who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shether, Admatha, Tarshish, Mears, Marcina, Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and set first in the kingdom. Verse 15, quote, According to the law, what is to be done about Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus uh, 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 delivered by the eunuchs. Verse 16, Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all the women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. Verse 18, This very day the noble women of Persian media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say, the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And note, he didn't, the wise man didn't say Queen Vashti any longer. Right? It's just Vashti here. Vashti's never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin promised, so he sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this historical account, God. And so, Lord, we're, we're seeing, we're looking to see your providential hand. We're looking to see your power, your majesty, your glory, in this chapter, Lord, we're looking over the course of this book to see you, the redemptive narrative of how you rescue and preserve your people for your glory and their good. And while we're looking to see that chiefly, Lord, we also know that this is a historical narrative, that this actually happened. And so help us not to forget that either. And Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would use your word to change us, to shape us, to drive us into deeper worship of you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, in Ruth, we, we saw God's people, the, the, the Jews, we saw them in their homeland, right? We saw them in, in Bethlehem, and we saw them in, in, in the promised land. And again, it, it was a brutal period. The backdrop of the book of Ruth was this brutal period of the Judges, which began around 1375 B.C., Okay, the, the, the events of Ruth, specifically of Ruth, took place sometime after that, but before David was born, around 1040 B.C. Now, the events of Esther 
happen hundreds of years later. Okay, so we're, we're down the road by several hundred years. The, the events in Esther happened around 483 B.C., so, so at least 500 years after the events recorded in the book of Ruth. And in Esther, our setting isn't in the promised land. All right? Our setting is in exile. And, and, and we see some Jews, not all the Jews, living in exile, and, and seemingly, not just living in exile, but they are seemingly willing to live in exile. By the time of the events of Esther, many of the committed Jews, the devout Jews, they were able to go back to the promised land after having been forcibly uh, removed from the promised land. And they were able to come back at the time of uh, Cyrus's decree, and Cyrus was uh, King Ahasuerus's great grandfather, or his grandfather actually, and so uh, so Ahasuerus's grandfather allowed Jews to go back to the Promised Land around 583 BC. So around 50-ish years uh, before uh, the the setting of Esther takes place, Jews were allowed to go back to the Promised Land, but there were Jews that remained there, perhaps less devout Jews that decided to to stay in exile, if you will, and, and, and perhaps the, the pleasures or the comforts of, of exile were preferred to the living conditions in Jerusalem, to the living conditions in, in the promised land. Yet, as we know, God's people, they don't belong in exile, right? Exile isn't their home, and we get that especially in chapter 2. If you want to flip to chapter 2 of Esther just quickly and Again, we'll revisit this a little bit next week. But verses 5 and 6, we see the author say this. Now, there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, right? So that's the introduction to Mordecai that we get. The son of Jair, the son of Shemi, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Okay, so, so there's some time that's passed since King Nebuchadnezzar took the Jews captive, and years later, some of these Jews were still living in exile. Some, some were born in exile. They don't know anything but exile at the time of this writing, okay? But you see here in, in, in our passage, you see uh, or you see, in, you see King Ahasuerus mentioned, and in Scripture, you see three different uh, Ahasuerus's mentioned, three different King Ahasuerus's mentioned. One is in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. Another is in Ezra chapter 4, verse 6. And then you, you see uh, a king named Ahasuerus mentioned here. All three of them are different. Okay, they're, they're, not, they're not the same person. Historians believe that this Ahasuerus, who we're going to spend a lot of time on this morning, but uh, they believe that this Ahasuerus in our text is the one who ruled over Persia and Media and Babylon. He's known uh, in history as Xerxes, if you're more familiar with, with Xerxes. The, the NIV, if you're using that translation, actually uses the name uh, Xerxes, you, you'll see there. But Ahasuerus is his Hebrew name. And, and this, um, uh, what we know from hi- historical commentators, harmonizes well with, with where and when the events of Esther actually took place. But one historian gives us some context. They say that he, speaking of King Ahasuerus, he reigned for 21 years, okay, from 486 to 
roughly 465, he invaded Greece with an army. It is said of more than 2 million soldiers, only 5,000 of whom returned with him. King Leonidas, if that name rings a bell, King Leonidas with his famous 300 arrested King Ahasuerus's progress. Uh, and then, uh, and, and so that, you know, that was a, uh, an epic battle in, in history that took place. So, so King Leonidas and his 300 uh, really stopped the progress uh, or put a stunt in the progress of King Ahasuerus. And then he was ultimately um, defeated in, in Salamis uh, by uh, an, another warrior, if you will. But, it, but it's after, historians believe that it's, it was after his return from this invasion and his defeat uh, that Esther was chosen as his queen. And so th- there, there would be a battle kind of in between what we're looking at this morning and where we pick up uh, later on. Uh, there's a Greek historian, Herodotes, who died in 425 BC. He described Xerxes or Ahasuerus in this way. He said he was occasionally sagacious and principled, but more often he was arbitrary, right? which tyrants always are. He was arbitrary, he was tyrannical, and he was a brutal despot, is how he's described by this Greek historian. And as we'll see, there was a general hostility toward the Jewish people during the reign of King Ahasuerus. Now, we enter into Esther chapter 1 with gluttony, right? We enter it seeing pride, and really just overall, we just see godless hedonism, right? Pleasure for pleasure's sake. Pleasure and possessions are kind of the end-all, be-all of, of this kingdom. And, and King Ahasuerus, he throws a party for a total of 187 days. And for 180 days, he demonstrated to, quote, armies, nobles, and governors the riches of his glory and the splendor of his pomp, and greatness. You see that in verse 4. Okay, that lasted for 180 days. And then following that, there was this lavish seven-day feast, if you will. And you can go back to verses 6 and 7 to see that. It says, during this feast, there were white cotton curtains, violet hangings, fastened with cords of fine linen, and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic payment of uh, porphyry marble, mother of pearl, precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. All right, so King Ahasuerus, he was a powerful man. Okay, he was a very wealthy man. He was a very successful man. He was a very dangerous man. He was a very feared man. All right? And he reigned from India, our text says, to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, which is another way of saying that he reigned over the, the known world. Okay, King Ahasuerus reigned over the known world. He has a vast kingdom, and his goal was total domination. All right, that was the aim, total domination and total assimilation into his way of life. All right, now, some historians believe that this display here in chapter 1 that we see of wealth and, and power and pleasure was a prelude to his war with the Greeks, that he was trying to get people uh, 
into uh, uh, battle mode. If you like what you see here, there can be more. Glory can be yours if glory is mine in this war. One, one historian says the king's intent in throwing this banquet was to rally the leaders of Persia to support him in his attempt to conquer the Greeks. And the author of Esther describes in great detail the setting of the banquet, painting a picture of great wealth and power of Persia by describing the rich adornments of the feast. If we put ourselves in the shoes of a Jew living in the Persian Empire at the time, we are impressed with the power of the king. Right? It's as if the king is saying, look at all that I enjoy. Right? Look, look at all the things that I provide for you. Look at how benevolent I am. There's great wealth and treasures. There's plenty to eat. There's plenty to drink. You can do whatever you want, whatever your wildest dreams can imagine. You can do these things in my kingdom. If you, and if you want to share in this with me, you bow a knee to me, and you conquer in my name. And that's what this is all about. Right, now, remember the Jews that remained in Persia, they could have been allured by all of this wealth. They could have been allured by this power, and, and they could have been allured even by the perceived safety of such a vast and powerful and wealthy kingdom. This perceived security, perhaps, that they thought that they had. And, and you, can, you can put up with a lot when those are the primary things that matter in your life, right? You can justify a lot of wickedness when you look around and you perceive that there's safety and security in the kingdom in which you live in. Now, in the midst of this banquet, after seven days of, of drinking, after seven days of feasting, we see this king send seven eunuchs to, quote, bring Queen Vashti to him, right? Bring Queen Vashti before the king, with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and princes her beauty, for she's lovely to look at. Now think about this. Right? If the king is showing off all of his wealth and all of his power and all of his possessions, this summons here to the queen, who's not treated much like a queen, but the summoning of the queen is a progression of that, and I would argue that it's the climax of his bragging. It's the climax of his bragging. Now, you can imagine for a moment the intention behind a drunk, insecure, arrogant, pagan, hedonistic king sending seven eunuchs to fetch the queen who was hosting her own party for the women as was custom then. Right? You can imagine his intentions, his motives. Right? He, he wanted the people that were there at the party, he wanted the princes to stare at her with her royal crown on. They want, he wanted them to look at her lustfully. That's what we see going on here. He wanted them to look at her like an object that he owns. Right? The best of all the other objects that he possesses. The Greek historian Herodotus, again, he tells us that King Ahasuerus was a womanizer. He was a womanizer. So this is spot on for his character. A Jewish commentary that, that I was reading and studying this week translates the fetching of Queen Esther that, that she was to wear nothing but her crown is, is the, the sadistic nature 
of what we see happening here in chapter 1. The, the king was ordering the queen to expose herself to, to everyone. Right, so think of the humiliation here. Think of the devastation here. Right? There's no concept here of the Imago Dei. Right? No concept of that whatsoever in, in the king's worldview or in his kingdom or with the, the people that would lustfully gaze at this exposed queen. Right, Vashti, again, she may have had the title queen, but, but she was just another object, another possession of the king in his eyes. Right, if Boaz and Ruth was the refuge and the safety and the covering of Ruth, in contrast, King Ahasuerus is an exploiter of his wife. He's an exploiter of women. Right, it's, a, it's a gut-wrenching passage when we pay attention to what's happening here. Right, it should make us feel shame. It should make us feel uneasy. Right? But as our stomachs turn, as our stomachs begin to turn, the author of, of Esther shifts the power dynamic and ensures that we see something absolutely incredible. In the midst of all this grandstanding by this insecure and wicked king, a king who rules all of the known world, okay? Think in mind just how powerful Again, this king really is. Right? In the midst of all of his lavish displays of power and wealth, in the midst of his petty and tedious edicts about how you were to party at his party, the queen says no. Just no. Right? She says no. Right? The queen says no to the most powerful man in the known world. But Queen Vashti, verse 12, refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And at this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. She wasn't going to be looked at or treated in that way. She wasn't going to be a spectacle there. Right? This, is, this is the very definition of saying the emperor has no clothes. Right? All right he's publicly brought to shame by one simple word. No, I will not comply. All right, he had no control. He had control over so many things, but he had no control over the will of Vashti. Right? And a common emotional response from insecure and petty tyrants is exactly what we see here. The king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Right, that's what we call a temper tantrum, right? It's comical. We should laugh at this. It's probably appropriate, in all honesty, to laugh at this. This powerful king throws a temper tantrum, and in a massive overreaction, he calls a council. He calls his cabinet members. He calls a group of advisors. He calls his PR department, if you will. And he says, what are we going to do about this? She just said no. Right? Right? The text calls these guys wise men. Again, I think mockingly calls them wise men. And they come together to try to figure out what do we, what do we, nothing like this has ever happened before. This guy has a really large kingdom and we don't know what's going on. The king, and then the king asks this in verse 15, according to the law, right, all of a sudden there's this pretending to care about the law. Huh? And tyrants give the appearance of caring about what the law says, when in reality, they just bend the law and they manipulate the law to exercise whatever tyranny they want because they're 
at their very heart, they're prideful. They're prideful. They And they don't think they answer to anyone. There's no God above. There's just sky. We know that that's not true. But the king asks, according to the law, what's to be done about Queen Vashti because she's not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? So, here's what the wise men do. They decide to make another edict. Just like the edict as it relates to the freedom that you have with eating and drinking, they make another edict and what is a massive overreaction. And the edict is multi-pronged. Okay, the edict says that Vashti can never become, come before the queen again. See that in verse 19. We see that she's no longer called Queen Vashti, she's just called Vashti, and somebody's going to replace her. And by replace her, they mean someone that knows their place. Somebody that's more compliant is who they're going to replace her with. Someone that will bend to the will of the king, no matter what wickedness he tries to, no matter what havoc he tries to wreak on the Imago Day. And then the edict says, all women will give honor to their husbands. Every man is to be master in his, old, in his own house, verses 20 and 22. This is what the wise men think is going to help the hurt ego of a very wicked tyrant. This is what the PR department says is going to restore his image. Right? This is a kingdom ruled by a very insecure egoma- uh, egomaniac. Right? And, and, and nothing good comes out of a kingdom like that. So there's, there's a few things that, that I want us to notice here, and I put these as takeaways in your worship guide, but I think that it's profitable for us to, to, to see it and to work through it together. And the first is this, God mocks tyrants. He mocks tyrants. Again, we don't, we don't see the name of God in this chapter, and we're not going to see God's name in this entire book, but we see the Lord use not an army to publicly humiliate the king, although that comes later, right, in, in history comes later, but we see him use a woman to humiliate the king, right, the king who's conquered and, and believes himself perhaps to be a god, is brought to a place of public shame, and the Lord uses the disobedience of Queen Vashti to do that very thing. And he, in doing that, sets up Esther to bring about the plan to save and preserve his covenant people that are still living in exile. It's incredible. It's God's invisible, guiding, providential hand here. That's happening. And I think of Psalm 2. When I, when I studied this, I, my mind kept going back to Psalm 2, verses, particularly verses 2 to 4. The psalmist says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. Certainly, this is a kingdom that's set against the Lord and his anointed. You can see by how that kingdom functions. And and so these kings, according to the psalmist, they come together and they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And here's the response of our God. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. I've preached on this passage of Scripture before, but that word derision here, It means mock. It means deride. The laughter of God 
in this passage here is his very judgment over prideful and arrogant kings who think themselves to be gods, who think that they'll never stand before the God who created them and give an account for how they ruled their kingdom. The Lord laughs. And I would imagine that the the queen's disobedience here, that had to be funny to learn about in that day if word was spreading, right? That had to be funny. It had to be humorous to read about, right? People maybe would have laughed, but, but that's not what you see the king do. That's not what you see the, the PR department do, right? Tyrants are humorless. They don't laugh. They're sulky. They're embittered. They're angry. They're, they take themselves too seriously, and they're petty. They're very petty, They demand, in in, in their own taking of themselves seriously, they demand everybody around them to take them as serious as they take themselves. Now, as I was studying this, I thought of The Lord of the Rings, and Josh Hazel told me that all my pop culture references are at least 70 years old. But, But when I can bring in Lord of the Rings, I will. But when, when I, thought of, I, I thought of Frodo's return, when he, when he comes back from destroy, destroying the, the, the one ring to rule all the rings, right? he and his companions, they, they come back, and, and it's, it's recorded in the third book of the trilogy, and the chapter is called The Scourging of the Shire, which is not included in the terrible movies that were made about the books. But, but in my opinion, it's the real climatic event of the whole trilogy, the returning to the Shire and and the scourging of the Shire. And they come home to find Saruman secretly ruling under the guise or identity of a guy named Sharky. Okay? And, And anyways, the hobbits, they come home to loads of edicts. There's lots of edicts. There are lots of rules on what you can do, what you can't do, how much you can drink, how little, you know, what you can and can't have. And, and they just finished battle. They had just finished battle, like a real battle, okay? And, and they come home in celebrating. They'd been celebrating for, I, don't, I can't even remember how long they had been celebrating this victory, this conquering over the one ring that was going to rule them all. And they come home joyfully, happy, still chasing the, still knowing again that the battle is done, that victory has been acquired, and they come home to find petty tyrants running their shire, right? And and there's a war in the shire that ultimately eradicates all the tyrants, but what strikes me in that chapter is the joy and happiness and laughter in which the hobbits face the serious, joyless tyrants of the shire. Right, they, they face them with humor and laughter that flows from the victory that they experienced previously, yet they now live in. Right, they faced it knowing that the news of their victory hadn't yet reached the Shire. Hey, I don't know if you guys know, but we, we, just, we just saved the world, right? Essentially. Right, they, they carried that news with them. Right, the hobbits carried it in their hearts. 
And, and they were going to deliver that news to the people of the Shire, right? The people of the Shire needed to know that they were, in fact, free. They were free. And, and I think about that scene, and I think of the biblical account that we have here of a tyrant being put to open shame by the queen. And I think that we of all people, right, Christians of all people, should be able to joyfully and even jollily, if you will, face this type of opposition here in life. Right, we, 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 we shouldn't fret in the face of, of this kind of wickedness. We, we shouldn't despair in this kind of wickedness. We should be able to joyfully face the circumstantial, circumstantial heat in opposition to God's kingdom, ultimately because the finished work of Jesus Christ. All right, we laugh because we know that the ultimate battle was won. It was already won. It was won before we were even born. All right, the, the one ring has been destroyed. Colossians 2, 13 to 15, and you, right? And because the Holy Spirit of God inspired this, we can take this and possess this as our own. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. It was, it was all of us. It was all of us. God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and get this, he, speaking of God, disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. Right? The rulers and the authorities are those spiritual forces that are at work behind all the tyrants now, and all the tyrants in the history of the world, they've been conquered in Christ Jesus. Christ crushed the head of the tyrant behind all tyrants. That serpent in the garden, that dragon in the garden, he conquered that dragon in his humiliation. He crushed the head. All right, we're a free people. No edict secures our freedom. Our freedom was declared at a bloody cross. It's finished is what our king says. And free people, they laugh. They laugh worshipfully, worshipfully unto the Lord. Worshipfully unto the king of kings. And God mocks tyrants and his mocking them is a conquering of them. And his conquering of them it happens because Christ is is ruling and reigning in heaven and over earth. And all people, every single person ever created, will bow a knee and will give an account to this ruling and reigning Savior. So God, he mocks tyrants. That's good news for us. It's good news for us. I'm reminded of that in chapter 1 of Esther. Chapter 2, tyrants also seek to destroy the beauty and holiness of what God creates. Seek to destroy the beauty and holiness of what God creates. And in that, we should see the tyrant in all of us that we should repent of, right? But twisting good things, making them perverse, right? All, 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 all those good gifts that God gives us, those things God creates for his glory and our good, our enjoyment, can easily be manipulated and used for evil purposes, 
And I would even say that we see that uh, demonstrated as it relates to headship in chapter 1 of Esther. Headship is not sinful. And it would be wrong for us to call headship sinful. And, And I know that that is the cultural pressure that we face today, but we have to resist that. We don't repent of sins by committing other sins. Right? We don't build an entire worldview or theological system based on a knee-jerk reaction to really bad experiences. Right? We just repent of sin, and in doing so, we turn to Christ, who's the head over us all. Right? Headship is good because a good triune God created it, Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 18. But it is abused, and it's twisted by sinful men. All right, we see it in this passage, of course. All right, we see it in society, of course. But we also sadly see it in the church. We see it in the church. All right, headship, under the rule of King Ahasuerus, it looked like domination. It was domination, which is wrong and sinful, which has nothing to do with headship or biblical patriarchy. It doesn't have anything to do with that. The view of women... In the, in the kingdom of King Ahasuerus was that of a second-class citizen, an object for sinful pleasure. They were trophies or slaves or possessions. They were collected. They were enslaved. That's what a godless society does. And if you don't think that's the truth, look at the epidemic of pornography. Now, if you think that we're that far uh, past this sort of stuff, look at pornography. And, and, and not just pornography outside the context of the local church, but how many of you are looking at pornography now? That's how we behave when we reject the Imago Dei. Right? And, and when a church follows the spirit of King Ahasuerus, which is the spirit of the Antichrist, it, its leaders and its congregants in the context of the local church grow crass and callous and abusive and negligent toward women. An organization that behaves that way, they may call themselves a church. They may call themselves the bride of Christ, but they're nothing of the sort. They're a cult. Headship in Persia and in our society and often in our churches is blasphemous. And, And we need to see it that way so that we can repent of it. Right? Distorted, unbiblical headship, which again is just domination, makes man God, and in doing so, it rejects the head, which is Christ, to whom we must give an account. And we will, in fact, give an account. In contrast to pagan headship or pagan domination, biblical headship looks like this. One, men who fear God, reverence him, and delight in him and find their pleasure in him. Psalm 37.4, Proverbs 1.7, Proverbs 14.26, I could go on and on. Secondly, men who repent of self-importance. Men who repent of self-importance, Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Right, count others more significant. Three, men who lay down their lives for their wives as Christ did for his bride, the church. Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 25 to 26. Fourth, 
Men who know that headship means that they'll live with their wives in an understanding way. Right? First Peter three seven. Right? Men who 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 nurture their wives and their children in the gospel of Jesus Christ, understanding that they represent Christ in their home. Ephesians five twenty six. Ephesians six four. Five. Men who know that headship means they don't put burdens on their wives they were never meant to carry. Genesis two. 15 to 18, Ephesians 5, 23. 6, and we can send this out if you'd like. Men who confess sin specifically and repent of sin by making restitution with their wives, Luke 19, 1 to 10, 2 Corinthians 7, 8 to 10. We, we can't despair and we can't assimilate into how a society defines headship. They, they don't have the authority to define headship. We don't have the authority to define headship. God created it. He called it good. He defines it. So we have to capture it, recapture it, and the first step in, t- in doing that is repentance and faith. Right? Biblical headship images Jesus Christ. Biblical headship is a testimony about the sweetness of our Savior and his love and leadership of his bride, the church. And then lastly, God's kingdom is nothing like a tyrant's kingdom. God's kingdom is nothing like a tyrant's kingdom. I'm struck by the lavishness of this false kingdom set up by these false gods in this chapter. It's an unparalleled wonder to to image or to, to picture the lavishness or the wealth and the power that King Ahasuerus possessed, and, and, and probably the only thing to rival it would perhaps be Solomon's temple, right? But it, it came crashing down, right? It, it was conquered. It doesn't exist anymore, right? It's a footnote in history. It, it was ultimately unsafe to be in, even though the People that lived there didn't realize that. And it was a cruel kingdom. It was very harsh, very cruel, very demeaning. It was abusive. In every sense of the word, it was abusive. The rules were arbitrary, and they were always changing in order to protect the pride and the power and the arrogance of the king. People were enslaved and trafficked. There was a lust to control and break the wills of other individuals, to bind the consciences of individuals, which only God has the authority to do, by the way. It had all the signs of being a nation under the judgment of God, but no one paid attention to it. Right? One in which the consciences of those in power is seared. One in which the people in the kingdom, particularly those in power, were given over to a depraved mind, Romans 1.28. In contrast, God's kingdom is a beautiful, glorious, and unshakable kingdom. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12, 28, and 29. The kingdom of God, it came in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, who truly God became truly man, and he brought the kingdom 
by sacrificing himself for the kingdom in order to populate the kingdom. We receive a kingdom that won't be conquered. We receive a kingdom that won't be overthrown because our triune God really did, again, crush the head of the serpent in Christ Jesus, and he put him to open shame. The Lord's weapon of warfare is the sword of the Spirit. It's the proclamation of the exclusive gospel of Jesus Christ all over the world. It's the, the news spreading and, and, and penetrating the, 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 the hearts of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, telling them that there's a good kingdom, there's a better kingdom, there's an unshakable kingdom with a good, kind, gracious, compassionate God who abhors sin, a God who will never himself be mocked, who will put an end to all the suffering and will definitively defeat death when King Jesus returns to finally and eternally claim what's rightfully his. God's kingdom is nothing like the kingdom of a petty tyrant. And the thing that makes God's kingdom great is because he's there. He's there. He's the very light of it. And we as Christians, those of us with, the, with little tyrants living in us, can really have our sins forgiven. We really can be welcomed eternally into this kingdom. When we bow a knee to our good king, a king that by God's Holy Spirit we should want to bow to and worship. And that's King Jesus. And we will have access to him. People from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, wealthy, poor in this life, whatever, will have access to this king for all eternity. We go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for time in your word. God, and we pray that you would help us to long, to help us to love your kingdom. God, in order to love your kingdom, we must love you. And so help us to put away all those sins that easily entangle us, God, and to rest in Christ alone, our King, who sits at your right hand, who's ruling and who's reigning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.